what what from that period do you think or did you think at the time had the best chance to blow up and it just didn't I think the thing that I thought back then had the best potential was the Tony Lamont's record because it sounded to me like the most ordinary, the most commercial, the easiest, that there were a couple of tracks that I thought were radio friendly, sounded enough like what else was on the radio at the time that they belonged. Um, tragically, Tony had an accident shortly after the record came out. We lost him. There was never any real support for the record when you don't have an artist. Getting back to your original question, Prince was very supportive of the label at first. And he was really excited about having George and Mavis. And there again, he gave her a couple of tracks, but um, um, I thought the Mavis record, the Mavis record was as, 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 as good as a record she was gonna make anywhere at that point in her career. Because she was still pretty much tied to the classic Memphis recipe for soul music, which by then was a little bit dated but it wasn't quite time for her to have a renaissance. So if anything, we were too early with it instead of too late because she certainly gotten her props more recently, albeit by going in different directions and getting away from that traditional Memphis you know, sound. I don't think we ever made the record that I really thought had the commercial appeal that I wanted Paisley Records to have. The whole concept of Paisley originated with the fact that he had very successfully produced a hit for the Bengals, contributed to a Stevie Nicks record that was a smash, um, not to mention the success of Vanity Six and more importantly, the time in Sheila E. So Warner says, yeah, you can have a label. You're turning out hits like Motown. That's great. As soon as he got the label, he stopped doing it. That was the irony. I couldn't figure that out. He stopped doing it. All of a sudden it became, well, you know, we'll have a Jill Jones record, but David Rifkin can do that. Now that was before I had the label. Um, he was very passionate about the Ingrid Chavez project until it started. And then she started working with a couple of the engineer songwriters who worked for Paisley and made what I thought was a very pleasant record, but limited potential because it just didn't have, it wasn't a radio record. It was an artsy record and was quite successful in parts of Europe, by the way. We took her over on a promo tour and did some dates, and, and Ingrid actually broke some ground over there, as did Jill. Her Mia Boca was a smash in Italy and Spain, go figure, um, and was a club hit in England and France. Again, those the, the, the Jill was before me, but um, it seemed like he just would rather complain about Warner's not supporting the product as opposed to getting in the studio and giving them the product that they wanted from it. It was a joint venture, which meant that the profits and losses in the ownership of the label was by contract 50-50, 50 Warner's, 50 PRN. So he resented the fact, I think, that they had any input. To their credit, they didn't use their input. They didn't tell them what to record. Whatever we brought them, they said, okay. But they told me, like, can't he 
put some of his magic on some of this? I mean, this is too much B-levels. They were excited about, God bless them, they were excited about my brother's records. Of course, first of all, it was my brother, so they weren't going to say anything bad to me. But that was to my advantage. It was to our advantage. And the jazz department at Warner's was, happened to be friends of ours. So they were very supportive. And Eric's first solo album, actually both of them, got a lot of attention, but in jazz, which was a, a minimal, a, a minuscule market. Did, 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 Eric, did Eric get in there because you were there? or? Oh, no. Was that totally independent? of? Well, what do you mean by making records or getting in the band in the first place? Making, yeah, making a connection with Prince at all, with that camp. Yeah. I'll tell you what happened. Um, Sheila E. was putting her band together before the Purple Rain tour. Was looking for a saxophone. She didn't have any M yet. She told Prince, I, I need a sax player in my band. Um, I overheard the conversation and I said, you know, I got a brother who plays sax. And he says, well, does he have a tape? Can you send a tape? And I'll give it to Sheila. You can give it to Sheila. So I told him, send me a tape or something. He was living in Atlanta at the time. Um, ironically, gigging with Gary Scheider and Harold Bean, another XP-Funk guitar player, and Gregory Coleman, a drummer friend of ours, from Richmond, who was originally from Richmond, who had, had been Otis Redding's drummer for a while on the road and worked in the Motown Review. He was a, 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 a first call road drummer in the 60s soul circuit. And he had settled in Atlanta. My brother was in Atlanta, so they were old buddies. And they used to get together with Bean and Scheider and Jam all the time. So he sent me a tape of some gig they did, and I gave it to Prince. He gave it to Sheila. But by then, she had already hired ADM. Somebody in Oakland knew him, you know. My prince said, well, your brother's pretty good. Maybe we should bring him up here, as you wish. So that's how that happened. Then he was up here, and he, he sat in on some things, and they ended up doing the family record. And then we went on the tour, and about halfway through the tour, Prince decided that Eric should come out and join the band and sit in on the last three songs of the set. And then as the tour went on, it seemed like every night he was writing, Prince was writing another horn part for another song that Eric did. By the time the tour was, was over, he was up there for half the show. But, um, you know, in the background, but he just kind of seeped his way in. Yeah, well, I love sexy. Yeah, so, so I, I, original I was, hookup, but that, that was, you know. That love sexy band was tremendous. That era. That <clears throat> fire. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, to, to my taste, his best band. I mean, it's, it's, you know, that's, and he's had, and that, that's, you know, that's no disrespect to his other bands because he's always had superb bands, but absolutely. That was yeah. my favorite. But, but I'm a Funketeer, so of course that was my right. favorite band. Yep, yeah. yep, yep. Were, were you disappointed when he scotched the Black album? Not really. Um, because I know a lot of funketeers who think that's his, like, peak of funk, you know. I don't necessarily agree with that, but. I don't either. I think the legend made the Black Album way more important than it really is. I agree. Because to me, I, because I, I and, and I, I realize I have to preface this because I heard so much of the music he made in that era, much of which never was officially released, that. 
this didn't seem to be the best of it all. I mean, it was cool. There's definitely some cool shit there. I mean, there's very little he ever recorded that wasn't worth at least listening to once, you know. He but did a I mean, bunch of B-sides during that era that were as good or just as, as good. good or better. Yeah, know? I totally agree. Totally agree. But that's, you know, don't, don't, any, 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 don't hate if you're a Black Album fan. It's, it's, it's great stuff. It's fun. But it, I just don't think it's as important. Um, the statement that he was trying to make when he recorded it was kind of like a middle finger to those who were saying he had sold out and he ain't funky no more. Yeah. So in that sense, the Funketeers embraced it because it's like it has this meaning. But, you know, all you had to do was go to one of his gigs if you were worried about it. You know, it's like, Funk wasn't going anywhere. It was always going to be there. So you, you parted ways and then you ended up um, went. Let's get to the Bootsy story. So you're you're out of Paisley Park. You've left the Prince camp. And how did you go yeah. right to Bootsy? Or no, I, I started freelancing again, tour managing after taking about a six month hiatus, um, just to catch my breath because it had been ten years of go 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 go. And I'm like, okay, I have a wife. I I, I need to look at her more often. You know, I'm just like let's not rush into anything. Um. But I'm trying to think what was the first thing I did when I went back on the road. You know, I don't remember the sequence of events, so I may have the sequence wrong. But but there was a period there over a period of maybe three or four years where I helped Sheila put together E-Train, which was her Latin jazz band that was around for a couple of years. Um that was after she had left Paisley and left Prince during their first divorce and she wasn't doing anything. And she had actually been sick and she was better and she wanted to get back out there, but she didn't have a band and was looking for something new to do. And it was like, let's do a Latin jazz band and just go out and play for fun and get you, get you back out there, get your chops back up and, you know, just don't try to chase hit records for a minute. Just let's just go do what you do best and just kick ass. And that band was killer. Um, so we did that for about a year. Um, Billy Sparks and I got together when Morris wanted to forsake his solo career and put the time back together. And we did about a year of getting, not even a year, maybe six months of tour managing that project to get it back up off the ground. Um, I had done some post-Paisley George Clinton stuff because he was getting his band back on the road after a while. He had been, they had been off for a couple of years. And on the strength of the Paisley records, um, he put it back together. And right around that time is when Bootsy popped up. And how did we, I don't even remember how we hooked back up, but, but ran into each other somewhere and it's like, hey, what you doing? What you doing? And he hadn't toured for a while either. So for a while there, I was like the comeback guy. I was like, you know, all these people who were looking to make comebacks. And um, and he was too. So, so it was just, um, you know, we got him an agent. He put a band together that was killer. And with some of the old guys, Mudbone came back and, and uh, Razor Sharp was back on keys. Frankie was on drums. Um, Catfish didn't want to tour. So he, he wasn't there, but but he, he he had some other cats that were just really stellar and a kick-ass band. And um, so we did that for about six months. 
and um, then he decided to stop touring again for a while because he's another one who, who, you know, he's he's Bootsy's a homebody. You know, he, he enjoys touring once he's out there, but he misses home. Well, he got into doing a lot of stuff with Bill Laswell, too. Yes. Yeah. 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 Always. Yeah. And um, and then let's see. Then I did a long Barry White tour in the mid-90s, which was fun. It was the tour right after his comeback record. Or comeback again. Um, the, the record Jamin Lewis did with him that was so successful. They put him back on the charts. And um, I did that tour. And then I got a call one day from a from, from friend of mine who had sent me a CD and said, you really got to check this out. You, this is right up your alley. This, this record is just, it's a new kid from New York and I know you're going to love it. It's your kind of music, so on and so on. And she worked for the label and she was just doing me a silence because she thought I'd like the record. And it was Maxwell's Urban Hang Suite. And as it turns out, she was right. I had it in the car. My wife and I were driving around the park one day and, and she's like, what is that? That is an amazing record. What is that? I said, it's this kid Maxwell from New York. I guess it's, you know, in the record, it, it, I don't even know if it, it had dropped yet. At any rate, a few weeks later, I get a phone call from an agent that William Morris, who had, I'd known for years, and he said, so what are you doing? I said, I'm looking. What do you got? He said, it's this new kid from New York. He's just put a band together. He's got a hot record. He's kind of difficult, so I thought of you, because he's high maintenance. And of course, it turned out to be Max. So I did the first four or five Who Counts Maxwell tours on behalf of Urban Hang Suite and the second album. In what, in what, in what way was he high maintenance? Just very picky about the people around him. Very opinionated, a perfectionist which I think is good. I'm not bad at perfectionism, as long as you're not nitpicky about dumb stuff. But um, he was, you know, uh, unlike Prince and some of these other guys who had grown up in bar bands and learned their craft before they became stars, Max had never done a gig. I mean, this, this is a kid who basically sat home with a computer and a friend who played guitar and dreamt up this record. And networked around New York to know enough of the right people to get great musicians. Uh, Stuart from Sade's band and some Watson and some other stellar players. He had a very specific vision um, that was very creative and fresh. But he'd never really entertained much. I mean, he'd done a couple of track shows, but I don't think he'd ever, he certainly hadn't toured. And um, and he was scared shitless. And I mean, he was scared to the point where it was like backstage was on lockdown. I mean, it was like Prince. No one. He would not let his personal manager backstage the first couple of three tours. Now, I didn't know that going into it. So one night his manager shows up. So I got him backstage with all the credentials and I'm treating him, you know, because he's the boss, right? Max pulls me in the dressing room. What's he doing here? Please get him out of here. I don't want to see his face before I go on stage. It's out of place. I had to ask his manager to get out. I mean, like that. Mm. So it, it really was more about him just being nervous and scared because he was unproven. And um, 
you know, he was a little stiff the first tour, but not enough to be a problem. He had he had the goods. And gradually his confidence built and so on, and he lightened up a little bit. But he was, you know, very demanding of his personal assistance and um, just, you know, wanted <clears throat> certain kinds of flowers in the hotel room and this, you know, that kind of stuff to make him comfortable and just, it was a little over the top. But, um, but you know, it was kind of long. You know, it was uh, the interesting thing about Maxwell was it was probably the first time. Now I'm drawing a parallel to my story about James Brown and his bands. It was the first time that I had worked with an artist that was significantly younger than me. So the dynamic was different. Because now I'm Pops. I'm the old guy who's been around the block. And they have respect for the people that I've worked with. You know, you tell any of these young artists you did 10 years with Prince, and they're like, oh, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. You know, it's like, really? But nonetheless, that's, you know, that's what I was feeling. So we got along fine. Had a great time, so on and so on. But he, too, was very competitive. And I remember that when he would do press, because his Urban Hank suite and D'Angelo's Brown Sugar came out more or less the same era, the same, I don't know exactly which came first and by how long, but they were out more or less the same time. They were both new artists on the scene with one name who had a new, fresh outlook on R&B. And they were both crowned as the, 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 the success of neo-soul, the, 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 the captains of the neo-soul movement. And I didn't know D'Angelo, but Max would always grumble about, man, I'm so tired of being cared to, to, compared to D'Angelo. I mean, he's dope. I love what he does, but we don't sound nothing alike. And I hate every review talks about both our records and compares them all the time. And I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. Drove him crazy. And one night we were, we were in L.A. at the Sunset Marquee Hotel, and he had an interview with Cheo Hodari Coker, the writer, now film producer, for some magazine or something. So we're in the lounge, and he's doing the interview. And after they're done, I walk him up to his room. The room next to him, big hotel, the room next to him, the fella coming out of that room as we're putting the key into Max's room is D'Angelo. Wow. Go figure. I think I think it was we were in town for the Soul Train Awards or something. You know, everybody was in town at the same time. And so they had obviously met before somewhere, God knows where. So Max introduced me and said, Hey, this is my man now. And so on. And they chatted very amicably for about five minutes, hugged each other, and it was, you know, Really a, a very unordinary meeting, but just a coincidence. So at the end of the last Maxwell tour, well, not the last one, at the end of the tour that came on the second album, I was in New York. This was in the at the end of the year 1999, literally the year 1999, in the fall or October, November, something like that. And I'm in New York 
meeting with Maxwell's business managers to finish up the tour accounting because it's just, you know, tour's over now. You got all the petty cash and all the stuff and all the files you've been schlepping on the road for three months, all that shit. So I'm in New York for a couple of days of meetings just to put the, put the ribbon on the tour and put it to bed. I leave the accountant's office. I'm walking across the lobby of my own hotel, planning to fly home the next morning, and my cell phone rings. And Mr. Leeds, my name is D'Angelo. And I'm like, no, it's not. I just left Max 20 minutes ago. I'm like, Max, get the fuck out of here and slam the phone down. Because it's like him playing me, right? The tour's over and I'm going home. And I know it's Max because he was a practical joker. It was the kind of thing he might do. So I hung up. 30 seconds later, phone rings again. Now, Mr. Lee, seriously, it's D'Angelo, Michael Archer from Richmond, Virginia. You used to live in Richmond, Virginia. You work for James Brown and Prince, and I want to meet you. I've got a new album called Voodoo. It's coming out, and I'm going to put a band together and tour, and I just wonder if you would be willing to have a meeting with me and my managers about managing the tour. Now, mind you, I'm a huge fan of Brown Sugar. Only time I've ever seen this guy is I saw him in Houston on a show and wasn't that impressed and met him in the hallway as a hotel with Maxwell. That's all I knew from D'Angelo, except I thought Brown Sugar was an amazing album. And as it turns out, it really was him. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I just finished a tour and I am I'm in New York. So, you know, I'll stay over a day. Can we hook up tomorrow? So I did. And um that led to 18 years of D'Angelo. Wow. And it's, it's, it's been like that. It's just, it's, it's crazy. I just pinch myself because it's like, I love the Maxwell record his agent calls. They didn't know I loved the record. I love Brown Sugar. He calls. And, and it, it's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm smart enough to realize it isn't me. It's the resume. It's it's Prince. It's anybody in that generation. Um, I mean, I left out Raphael Sadiq. I love my, I love that brother. Like like he's, like he's a brother of mine. Raphael is an amazing guy, amazing talent. Um, you know, I did a couple of years with him on his uh, Pookie yeah, record uh, solo albums before Columbia. They're reuniting. Um, I, I hear too. And um, but but all of these people are people that I would pay to work for because I just I mean you're paying me to sit and listen to these shows every night that shit is dope <laughs> you know yeah. and um, and then of course there were five Chris Rock tours which has nothing to do with music except that there'd be music playing when he walks on and music playing when he walks off but there again and, he, and he's a Prince fan too well known so no, huge music a very knowledgeable music fan I mean seriously like like yours and my level music fan very knowledgeable um and, and chris too it was like i don't know if you if you know nelson george the writer film producer um i mean not personally but of course back, i know back you should get him on your show yes. back in, in 88 he brought chris to i think it was 88 brought chris to a print show and brought chris sorry to a print show and at that time, Chris was a struggling comic. He wasn't even on SNL yet. I think it was right before he went on SNL and became part of SNL. 
And um, at the after show party, he, he introduced him. He's this young comic. He's a friend of mine from Brooklyn, Chris Rock, Alan Lee. He's Princess Tour Manager and so on. And Chris was like, you you managed all this? It was the Love Sexy Tour, which was a lot of all this. And, and I said, well, somebody has to play it off. He says, man, if I ever become a big star, you're going to produce my tours. And, and it was one of those, yeah, right, kid. You know, just you just like, yeah, okay, you know, and play it off and forget about it. Except we did swap numbers. And occasionally he would come through Minneapolis or I'd run into him on the road somewhere and we just kind of once or twice a year ran into each other, had conversations. And sure enough, a few years after he left SNL, when he first blew up, phone rings. Yo, Leeds, I'm ready. Let's go. And five tours later, you know, and it's it's crazy. Why do you think uh, D'Angelo hasn't put out more records? Because he hasn't made them. <laughs> he, let me put it this way. He's got about 10 albums worth of unfinished records. Yeah. That could that are brilliant. We all have our demons. We all have um, we all have things that, that dictate how we work, when we work, where we work, what drives us, what's most important in our lives. And the thing about D that's always frustrated me because I've been used to being around these overly ambitious people who will kill for success um, is that he isn't in it for the success. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand that yet. Mm-hmm. He appreciates it. He loves the fact that when people love his music and that he t- loves touching people with it. Um, he is fundamentally a wonderful human being. He's a good guy. Um, he just doesn't have the drive, the ambition, the confidence, combination of all those things to be proactive. He wants to record, but the way he works is so primitive. He insists on working analog, which means an expensive studio with expensive engineers. And his modus operandi is very, very old fashioned in the sense that he can take two weeks just to lay a basic track. Because he he paints by impulse, just just he'll he'll go in the studio for three hours just listening to what he did last night. And then suddenly when everybody else is getting sleepy, he'll say, "Okay, I got a keyboard part to add to that. And then that'll be. Well, that's it for tonight, fellas, you know, and and it, it it's easy to say it's laziness, but it isn't. Because when he does work, he works hard. He's just, there's a start button missing. Mm-hmm. And, definitely, and Definitely the beat of his own drummer. Yeah, totally, totally. But the most, probably the second most gifted artist I've ever worked for beside Prince. I mean, I've heard things that he's done privately, things that he's done in different situations, in playing different kinds of music than what he chooses to record under his own name. The versatility he has, the knowledge he has, his ability to play, pick up and learn different instruments, 
um, is really second only to Prince. He is an enormously gifted human being, and it 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 annoys the hell out of me that the that the world doesn't know the depth of his gift. It it it's just astounding. I, I did want to ask before we do part, um, what it was like for you doing the, the tour bus series? Um, that must have been a kick to see yourself, you know, animated. <laughs> yeah, it, it, of course it was. Of course it was. Um, it, it's, I guess there's, there's some cachet to saying that you had to, had dude, you know, doing your cartoon, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it was fun. It was it was a fun project. Of course, as as we sat and did the interviews, we had no idea what it was going to look like. None of us knew what it was going to look like until it aired. So that's you know, whereas I got the basic idea of how bad I looked talking to you now and what it'll look like on the podcast, but I had no idea what that shit was going to look like. <laughs> so that that was that was kind of different. Um, but the fun part was is is that some of us who were in it. Some of the other prints, um, Jellybean from the time, Bootsy and, and Frank Wadi, we were all on Facebook sharing stories about, did you see that? Did you see that? This is that like, like, like we never knew any of this. We were like kids watching this, these stories for the first time, just because it was, it was, it was uh, cartoons. It's like we were all getting a kick out of it. And it was like, okay, we really can't say this shit to anybody else because it'll sound really self self-aggrandizing and you know egotistical. But amongst ourselves, it's like, dude, this is dope. You know, we were we were tripping. It was hysterical. Um well, it was, it was a kick for sure. I mean, uh and just so good, you know. I mean, as you all know, throughout the years, I mean, funk music especially has not really gotten it's just due in many different ways. Sure. So to have a project like this at least get out there, you know, into the public eye, uh, I thought was just great. So yeah, it it, it was it was fun. It it, it was it was um, it was fun to watch. I mean, I, I certainly went up a notch in my son's my son's estimation. He's like, Dad, you're a cartoon character. That's dope. How old is your son now? Uh, Forty five. <laughs> <laughs> but. In 45 years, he never had a dad who was a cartoon character. I, was, I just told him, careful what you wish for. <laughs> well, so are you still uh, inter- Are you still tour managing? Are you still interested? No. Oh, okay. so you've retired from that. Yeah, my, but... knees re- my, my knees retired me. The last time I tried to fit them in a bunk on the tour bus, they rejected it. <laughs> they, just, they just said, no, Pops, you're done. <laughs> So you've read, you've read in the book, and, and are you still continuing to do uh, album packages and things like that? And- yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we just did the, the At Home with Bad Self, the Live in Augusta record with, with Harry Wanger and Universal. Um, we've got a couple other ideas for the James Brown catalog. It seems like that never dries up, so there's a few things we're talking about maybe doing next year. Um, and um, been working with Eels and Outplat. And now and again, records, they've got um, the original demo that Bootsy and the guys did for James Brown before he signed him to King Records. 
they've got that coming out, which is something that's never been released anywhere. It was it was going to be a single on King Records, and for whatever reason, the release was canceled. So we dug out those tapes, and, and they're going to be releasing. It's called More Mess on My Thing. And um, it, it maybe actually maybe it's in the stores now. I'm not I'm honestly not sure, um, but um, we're doing that. And uh, of course, my book's coming out in February. That will take some time to get out and try to convince somebody it's worth reading. And um, how, how how many years did you put into doing that? Or how much? Fifty. <laughs> did you keep kind of? Did you keep kind of starting and putting it aside? And, and yeah, exactly right. That's that's it's, it's absolutely what would happen. I, I think I wrote a couple of chapters in the 70s mm-hmm. because it was all fresh in my mind. And the, the original idea was to do a diary of my years with James Brown and maybe turn it into a biography of him. And But I wasn't really, I mean, when I look at the stuff I wrote back then, it was like, oh, my God, that wasn't even half literate. But... It was, put it this way, I was very in, in, immature as a, as a writer. But, um, but yeah, the idea of doing a book about that stuff is that old. And just, you know, I would pull it out and work on it and then put it away and, you know, never felt it was the right time. Or I didn't have time because I'm going on tour for nine months. And it just was that thing that was, it was like I told somebody it was like a favorite toy that you just pulled out of the closet once a year and played with to remind yourself it's cool and then put it back. You know, um, but finally, you know, and and I'm working on a second book, and um, actually, I've got ideas for a couple different books. And talking to the publisher about which the one I want to do is not the one they want first, so we're going to figure that out. But <laughs> but you must feel great finally having this project done and coming out there. Yes, <laughs> yes, I. I my wife and mother, God rest her soul, my mother's no longer with us, but they had both been after me for so many years. When are you going to finish the damn? I mean, it became a family joke. It, I mean, literally a joke. It was like, yeah, 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 I know. It, it got to the point where if she was asking me, when are you going to rake the leaves? I would say, oh, I'll get to it soon. And she'll say, yeah, I like the book. You know, the book became the reference for every part of every joke. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that it's done and I can look her in the eye and as, as soon as I get a copy and can just hold it up and say, ha, ha, you know, that'll that'll be the relief. Yeah. To me, it sounds like it has some makings for a possible film. Oh, we'll see. We'll see. I, I, I wouldn't want, you know, what, Soul Man 2? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> No, like the uh, one with, with John Cusack, the um, the rock movie where about the Almond Brothers tour. Yeah, there you go, there you go. That could work. That could work. Well, tell somebody in Hollywood, I'm down. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, man, I enjoyed this so much. I, I have watched some of your other other uh, podcasts, and and you know, it's it's having a knowledgeable fan. So many times, the people who do documentaries that are the people who call the most and say, well, we're doing a documentary on Prince. I'm from the BBC. Would you be willing to do an interview? And yes, of course, we'll do an interview. But, you know, sometimes the people who are, they don't know what to ask. And they they, they just, you know, they've, they've done like a midnight cram session on, okay, who is Prince now? What was his real name? You know, Minneapolis. 
he's from Indianapolis, you know, that kind of a thing. And so, you know, to kick it with somebody who actually knows what they're talking about and knows more about some of the shit than I do, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, Absolutely. Have a great holiday. You the same. Good luck with the book. Thank you. Uh, look forward to reading it very much. Thanks, mate. All right. Yes. Bye. Bye. Hey, back at Truth and Rhythm headquarters. Thank you for joining us on another magical ride with Truth and Rhythm. Whether you're watching or listening, as always, thank you so much for your continued interest and support. Be sure to subscribe. Go to YouTube. Go to the Funkin' Stuff channel. That's where Truth and Rhythm lives and breathes and thrives. Also, goodies here like TIR Quick Takes. And if you subscribe, you know what? You get the show before anyone else. It's free. If you love jazz, funk, R&B, soul, you can't miss it. Pass it along. Tell a friend. Tell family. This audience is growing, and it is a beautiful thing, all coming together for the love of this great music. Also, if you can throw us a buck or two, we could use the support financially, keeping the lights on, keeping the servers going, all these expenses. If you can help support the program, whatever you can give, much appreciated. Go to the FunkinStuff.net website, and on the right-hand side of every page, you just click and you can donate through PayPal, credit card, whatever. Very easy to do and so much appreciated. And if you do a sizable donation, I will mention you on the program. Also, drop me a line. Email me at scottg at funkinstuff.net. Let me know who else you'd like to see on the show, what you enjoy about the music. Let's just kibitz and uh, talk about stuff, you know, talk music. You'll find that I respond very quickly, and I much enjoy the uh, rapport and the camaraderie and the interaction. Always remember, this is your show, The True Music Lover. So for now, that's all the time we have for this one. It's a wrap. As always, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine saying, keep on vibrating to the rhythm of the one. <laughs>